hopefully will drive up prices in the short term on natural gas. It's an interruption in supply to global markets. And that Freeport facility, I'm sure, is huge. Um, it's not the only one here in the U.S. I know the Chenier plant is in Louisiana somewhere. So it's it's not the only export facility we've got. It's a big one. It's uh, going to cause an upward pressure in short-term natural gas prices in Europe. But um, I would just say that's nothing new. One benefit is um, the Gulf Coast of Texas has ample um, technological capabilities. They've got more than enough engineers and they're not suffering from any uh, lack of equipment. Uh, if if this was Russia, they would be in a very, very bad spot right now. Um, I don't know if Axel's available. If he is otherwise engaged, um, we can discuss something else. But I wanted to inquire about whether he had had a chance to uh, read that uh, freight waves article i sent and the one from um, lloyd's and uh yeah I, I did sorry ryan yes apologies uh, when you sent it to me i went through um the well the usual suspects of information sources in regard to shipping and uh, oil tankers and whatnot and there's a couple as you know and uh, yeah there's a number of uh, greek shippers or greek shipping companies um, who still command a series of ships and typically have their own ship managers. These ships are, for everyone who's not in this business, not registered in Greece, okay? They are domiciled in other jurisdictions, one of which, often enough, is the Marshall Islands. Now, that is something unique because the Marshall Islands do have essentially a carbon copy of U.S. law. There's a good reason for it if you want to go through the island uh, hopping campaign and then you know why. Um, nevertheless, the register for companies and vessels inside companies, each vessel is a company in the Marshall Islands is um, inherently peculiar, let's put it this way. In any event, um, the Marshall Islands do not impose taxation on those vessels, which is why um, ship owners prefer it. Um, what else should we say? There's a number of um, shipping companies and ship owners who benefit from what can only be described as um, gray oil trade, meaning um, oil which technically um, arises from Russian state-controlled, state-engineered GRE sources or uh, oil companies in Russia who should not be selling to any Western uh, off-taker and uh, they found out that uh, essentially they are predominantly delivering to Indian refineries. So, Ryan, let's uh, go on with that. What would you like to know or what would you like to discuss? Um, I was primarily interested in the claim from the Freight Waves article about um, the significant decline in regular inbound cargo to Russia, uh, basically retail goods. I oh, presume. 91%. Yeah, that, that seemed like an awfully high number. Uh, the Lloyd's article, I thought, was particularly enlightening on who exactly is skirting around uh, European oil sanctions and how exactly they're getting away with it. But I, I thought it was um, excellent ammo for people like Peter, who are advocating for increased sanctions on insurance carriers here in the U.S. And uh, I thought it was pretty enlightening on 
the gray oil market, as you've termed it. Um, these people are are finding ways to get around restrictions and still want to make money off of essentially, you know, blood money. True. Blood. Yeah, true. Absolutely. But the thing is, Brian, I think since the, these uh, were published, uh, we have seen now that the London market for insurance in that regard is absolutely has ceased to exist. So um, they're not going to get anything from there. Uh, there's no US market for them. And uh, nearly every other um, insurance carrier you could have um, is then Southeast Asian. And uh, none of those want to uh, be tarnished, let's put it this way. I think that topic is closed. Perfect. What is in, what is interesting, what is interesting, but that doesn't mean that they don't ship it. At the moment, some of these, um, some of these ship owners and ship managers are taking inordinately large risks. Um, yeah, I think um, they might be discouraged from that. I I know there's been some uh, interesting things happen with commercial sh- shipping cargoes uh, moving in and around Iran to that effect. Um, I, I I don't want to get into you, too much detail. No, no, you should you should elaborate a little bit more because it's interesting because it's absolutely pertinent to this, and I think our audience will appreciate it. Well, um, suffice it to say that uh, some commercial shipments that move in and around Iran have spontaneously combusted, and uh, Iran has accused um, Western intelligence agencies of employing covert measures to uh, discourage commercial shipping traffic, uh, basically black market oil coming out of Iran. Um, And I wonder if... uh, similar things were to happen with one or two of these cargoes of Russian gray oil, if that wouldn't dissuade uh, European-based shipping carriers from dealing with such cargoes. There's a problem. There's a big problem, and you know what it is. You don't want to be accused of being conducive to an oil spill. Exactly. Nobody wants to be blamed for the next Exxon Valdez. Yeah, but the big problem here is that these ship owners who are currently without insurance coverage uh, and um, who are speculating on this and are trying to get away with it are running the risk anyway because industrial uh, accidents happen, shipping accidents happen, and specifically in an environment where the shipment is definitely running what I would call contraband. You simply do not know what kind of topsy-turvy approach they may take in and what kind of lanes they would do, uh, pursue and how they react don't forget the crew is stressed highly stressed because they will be aware the captain will be stressed and probably corrupted do you really trust them to run all security protocols properly this is the bigger risk i think than any kind of covert action i i think you're probably right on the mark there um and to that end they've you know they've already been observed transferring oil oil cargoes on the high seas which is you know uh i guess they pulled it off this time without a hitch but typically that type of thing if you're doing a ship to ship transfer that's done in a harbor or somewhere in protected waters so you know if a rogue wave were to pop up um you don't have an incidental oil spill and the fact that they're exchanging oil cargoes like this out on the high on the open seas in the atlantic uh, is demonstrative of ex- exactly what you're saying. They're taking inordinate risks 
because they know they're they're dealing in uh, contraband. Well, if only, if only our wonderfully uh, associated Greek government were to press its uh, nationals, both uh, living for, um, say, foreign and domestic, I would have said, mean both living in Greece as well as those who live obviously predominantly in London. Um, if they were to, you know, have a little look-see, drop by, have a chit-chat, have a cup of coffee, and make clear that this is not something to be done for I, the good of all. I wonder why the Department of Commerce hasn't reached out to the Marshall Islands and it had had the same conversation in a you know a much more direct manner. Uh, we exert great influence over the Marshallese, uh, the largest diaspora of Marshallese in the entire world outside of the Marshall Islands is actually here in Oklahoma. Now, why would that be? Uh, because we irradiated their country when we uh, tested nuclear weapons in the Marshall Islands after World War II. Um, and where where was the biggest treatment facility? For irradiated people? Yep. I have no idea. Enid? Well done. <laughs> it, was, it was a hunch, but I, I had no See, idea. <laughs> isn't it funny? But the thing is, no, what, what this needs is a friendly Freedom of Navigation Act kind of operation where you show up in the area and have a little look-see and uh, say hi and goodbye. Yeah, um, we could definitely exert uh, some carrot or stick diplomacy with the Marshall Islands over uh, their flagged ships. And I mean, frankly, it's it's another one of those situations where you're playing whack-a-mole. If, if we exerted that pressure on the Marshall Islands, they would quickly just reflag those ships in some other country that we don't have so much influence over. Uh, yeah, but that's not the point. I think that's really not the point. Nobody wants to go to Liberia with these tankers at this point in time. Nobody wants to redomicile them into other countries, which we cannot, uh, which we could also reach. That's not the thing. I don't think it's whack-a-mole. I think it's different. Yeah, I think no. that, uh, that this is a matter of closing loopholes on the one hand, but sending signals. The biggest problem here is that if you need to, you need to talk to one of these ship owners, one and spread the news. Yeah, you just well, need to find out who is the weakest link amongst the opinion leaders. And I forget who the guy was, uh, the North American-based or the American-based um, shipping carrier. I think it's uh, it's not Evergreen. Um, no, uh, they're from Taiwan. No, uh, in Evergreen ships uh, connexes. They don't ship oil cargoes. It's uh, another one, uh, maybe Forest, or I, I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, their CEO said a few weeks ago that um, basically it, it wasn't a moral question for them. They would ship Russian oil as long as it were legal and until it were sanctioned by Congress, they would keep doing it because they had an obligation to shareholders, not to uh, the moral police. Um, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but um, he was essentially telegraphing that, you know, hey, until Congress says we can't do this, we're going to continue doing this. And those are exactly, the, I mean, the man communicated exactly what needs to be done. So people who have the power to um, communicate to the people who need to communicate to him should ex exert their influence wherever that may be. Um, he needs do to hear really, from some do congressmen. You really think, do you really think that he hasn't heard from anyone? I, I don't think that at all. I think he needs to hear from more people until he gets the message and either 
doesn't about face on his own or we contact enough people within the legislative body to pass a law that uh, will affect exactly the change he mentioned. If he says he's not going to budge until he's forced, let's force his hand. On the point of hands, on the point of hands, uh, let's go to Christopher in BSO. And finally, the piece for Ukraine. We spoke at least twice yesterday, and both times immediately as I had briefly disconnected. Uh, Christopher. Hey, good morning from uh, New York City. Uh, just a quick mic check. Loud and clear. Thank you. You know, a couple of things uh, occurred as I was listening to uh, I was listening to Axel and Ryan speak. Our energy infrastructure uh, has been uh, there's critical infrastructure has been designated by the uh, U.S. government, uh, and we do a bunch of stuff to try to protect it from the cybersecurity and from physical security aspects. Um, and it's curious to me why, if we have that kind of critical infrastructure, that the actual U.S. government hasn't gotten into the business of creating or bolstering um, infrastructure, you know, as a as a company. So in other words, U.S. U.S. government being uh, standing up an LNG compressor plant or standing up um, a refinery, um, because goodness knows most of our a portion of our refinery capacity here is not actually owned by uh, the U.S. or U.S. entities. It's owned by foreign entities. And, you know, I'm always curious why the U.S. government hasn't looked to um, be a part of that to stabilize um, from a national security perspective. Because they well, don't need to. They have very good sources. But Ryan can talk about this. Uh, typically, uh, the government is very bad at running these things. But they're very good at finding the right people to run them if they're well communicating. But Ryan, please go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, you you hit on a couple of good points there. Um, 40% of the top 10 refineries in the U.S. are foreign-owned entities. Um, they might be uh, registered domestically here in the U.S., but uh, Citgo is one of them. They're owned by Petaveza, which is actually Venezuela. Um, there is the, the largest refinery in the United States is owned by a subsidiary of uh, Saudi Aramco. So um, I, I take your point. That said, um, the reason for that isn't um, a lack of interest by the U.S. government. It's more uh, a function of the fact that we were importing large quantities from these countries for years, and it's it was easier for them to get the crude over here and refine it. Um, and companies like that or, or petrostates that have billions and billions of dollars can easily set up and fund a refinery. We're not going to have a government-owned refinery here in the U.S. Uh, we believe in capitalism and private markets. And over the last few decades, consolidation within that industry has led to bigger and larger refineries. And uh, red tape with permitting and restrictions has also consolidated um, that whole industry into uh, fewer and fewer hands, so to speak. Um, there's a, a little bit of a NIMBY mentality. And for non-native English speakers, uh, NIMBY is an acronym, not in my backyard. Um, you get that a lot with industrial projects, whether it's a refinery or a nuclear facility to produce cleaner energy. Um, it's, it's just 
there's always regulations and red tape. Everybody wants cheaper gas. Nobody wants a new refinery. Everybody wants cheap electricity. Nobody wants a nuclear power plant. So um, there's a give and take there. And yes, we could do with updated um, refineries here in the U.S. I don't think we've permitted a big one in decades now. Um, and there are massive inefficiencies within our refinery process here because we are producing a lot more oil domestically in the U.S. within the last couple of decades. And the refineries have no, no financial incentive to catch up their refining process to be able to accept American crude versus their foreign supplies of crude. So there's kind of an imbalance with where uh, certain types of crude are produced and where they end up having to be refined because the refineries are disincentivized from streamlining that process a little bit. Um, Saudi, the, the Aramco refinery in Houston has no incentive to reconfigure their plant to accept oil out of the Permian Basin in Texas because they're owned by Saudi Arabia. So they want to bring over Saudi crude and refine Saudi crude because that's just the way the the global market has shaken out. Um, it's it's not lack of planning on the part of the government. It's, it's more of the free market doing what the free market does. Um, if anything, we could permit some new refineries and, and ease gas ah, prices that way. And who has been preventing that? Um, that's been a problem for a, a decade now, honestly. There's lots and lots of red tape there. I think a, another good question to follow that up is who wants to build a new refinery? Well, you could have at least uh, 25 years ago and even 15 years ago, you could have easily, easily had more refining capacity in the U.S. if uh, other structural limitations and a couple of restrictions had not applied. For sure. Now we, f now we find out that we are uh, in a transition to different kind of usage of fuels or say, energy inputs for, um, say, personal or individual mobile transport solutions, other people or a.k.a. cars. We now have less of an economic interest uh, for refining operations, but at the same time, we need uh, more refined fuel and we need it from different sources. So it is yet again short-sightedness um, and legalistic activism, which has led to, uh, say, abhorrent results in the market. If you guide the spirits of the market too much, they will lead into directions which will have unintended consequences. And that is why people should restrain themselves from restriction. Absolutely. You perfectly put a cherry on top of that. Thank you, guys. We've, we've created a crisis of our own design, and we have no one to blame but ourselves here. Well, and a genocidal dictator, on, on the other hand, but... And to, and to Christopher, um, just uh, in New York, just highlighting one thing. One thing is absolutely clear. The uh, National Security Plan of the United States has fortunately for a long time um, already integrated pretty much everything which is relevant in terms of asset base. And there is a fantastic insight into this. It's absolutely stunning what uh, the National Security Council's agencies do know about all these facilities. The problem is they constantly remind the politicians what not to do, and nobody actually follows their guide. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, and one more point. I mean, the Marshall, uh, going just sliding real quickly back to the Marshall Islands comment. I, I didn't realize that there were that uh, 
that they were harboring or flagging um, a lot of these ships. And it, it is interesting. Um, uh, I used to, as an army brat, I lived on Kwajalein for a number ah. of years. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it always has a very soft spot in my heart. And, uh, and I can understand the U.S.'s complication with um, how it, it, its ignorance in the early development of uh, the nuclear weapon technology just completely obliterated um, generations of of Marshallese and, and and sort of how they were how they were treated and there was a bit of nepotism that was going on within the Marshall Marshallese power hierarchy and and uh, uh, kingdom kind of structure that was exploited by the U.S. It was just it's really a, a, a tragedy, um, but that's an aside. Um, thanks, gentlemen, for all the insight. You're very welcome. I, Thank I, you very much. Wouldn't say that's too terribly different from um, a lot of the Native American tribes and uh, how things shook out for them. Uh, it's unfortunate, but um, all we can do is realize what we did and try to do better in the future. Okay. Uh, BSL very gentlemanly asked uh, for peace for Ukraine to go ahead. Bon dia. Bon dia. Thank you very much, BSL. That's very kind. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, Axel, and good morning to everyone. Slava Ukraini, first of all, and most of all. Um, I would just uh, wanted to maybe to Axel's argument um, into dissuading uh, the Greeks and the likes to shipping the oil could one of the arguments be made because of their actions and transposing uh, transposing oil in high seas be considered or fall on under eco-terrorism um, let's say uh, sites and potentially be considered as ryan rightly po- pointed out no one wants to be the next exxon valdez could this be add any way to it? That would be sort of first question to to that I would like to do. And the second one is uh, in in the in the site of ships. I saw a post from uh, on, on Twitter of someone who says being the um, the um, Bosphorus observer. Um, where there's a ship that went through the strait, supposedly to go to a country, but is going in up in Syria with 27,000 tons of grain. And my question would be, is it possible somehow, considering that Turkey is NATO, that we stop or, or any kind of these transfers of this of this stolen grain to pass through it. To, we know what where what they are. We know where they are. How are we allowing this to continue? I'm just very puzzled and perhaps very much frustrated and not making much sense. That's that's just sort of my question. Thank you. No, I think you made uh, really good sense on a couple of counts. Um, one, I I don't think they could be these nefarious shipping carriers that are domiciled in Greece uh, and probably have their ships flagged out of other places like the Marshall Islands. And it's not exclusively the Marshall Islands. There's lots of other Caribbean countries that do similar situations. Um, 
and have preferential tax uh, or whatever the reasons are that these companies decide to flag their ships in little tiny island nations. Um, we can't accuse them of eco-terrorism until they actually spill some oil. Um, what would be better for uh, discouraging them from continuing these operations is drying up their ability to source insurance. Um, inevitably, most of these cargo ships have to move through a canal at some point, especially if they're going to India. They have to move through the Suez Canal. And if you remembered back in 2020 during the pandemic, there was that large cargo ship that turned sideways and blocked all shipping traffic through the canal. I'm sure uh, whoever insured that ship ended up having to pay a bunch of money to make a bunch of people whole. Um, so I say all that to get to the point of if we can find creative ways of drying up their insurance capabilities or their ability to get their cargo underwritten by an insurance carrier, then they will not be allowed to traverse through the Suez Canal because the people that operate the Suez Canal will not allow an uninsured ship of that size and carrying a dangerous cargo to pass through the canal. You can essentially force them to take the long way around Africa, which uh, greatly increases their costs and their risks and probably just changes their decisions entirely of whose oil they're going to move and it, it messes up the economics of this entirely and might make it an untenable, hopefully will make it untenable for them to continue moving Russian oil uh, and taking blood money. Um, you'll have to remind me of your second question. Sure. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you very much. Um, uh, just to just to be sort of clarify one point. I, I would not say that we would accuse um, uh, those. I, I, all I all I meant to say there is I don't think we're going to shame these shipping carriers into stopping what they're doing. Um, and I on don't the potential uh, spilling hazard, I would say. Yeah, and mm. they haven't spilt any yet. Um, the there's a risk there. Um, there was definitely some stuff going on in the oceans around Iran to this effect. There's a threat there that um, when you're moving stuff that people and government agencies don't want to be moved, that um, somebody can take uh, guerrilla tactics to s slow you down. And I, I agree. I don't think anybody wants to be the next Exxon Valdez, but... Um, I, I think people are going to be reserved in um, taking actions like that, especially uh, given the tensions we've already got here. There's other ways to do it. We don't have to blow up any any cargo ships moving oil. We can dry up their, their insurance capabilities and achieve the same effect uh, without any threat to marine life. Uh, what was your second question? I'm sorry, I totally zoomed. yeah no 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 worries, no worries at all. Thank you so much, Ryan, for all your explanation. I really appreciate your thoroughness and all the details you're providing. And I much appreciate that. Really, uh, my second question would be: um, I actually saw a tweet regarding a early on uh, regarding a grain, a stolen grain ship. Ah, yes, that end up uh, basically it's. Uh, a tweet from York Isaac who says stolen commodities of Ukraine 
As recommended by CMC is part of uh, US Treasury sanctioned USC, Russia flag bulk carrier. Uh, transit bossward towards the Mediterranean with 27,000 allegedly to Beirut, but really went to Syria. So, yep. Um, if, if they claimed they were going one direction and then lied about it, and that would have prevented them from getting through the Bosphorus, um, they have shipping logs and manifests of who were, who was operating these ships. If somebody lied about where they're going, I would assume that that ship won't be passing back through the Bosphorus anytime soon. Um, I don't think they're going to get away with, with a trick like that more than once. So um, I don't know that anybody's going to intercept them before they reach Syria. Um, I may be mistaken on that. I'm, I'm probably not the person to answer that question. Uh, I would hope they would intercept them, but um, I wouldn't hold my breath. And the company I was referring to earlier here in the U.S. that has claimed they're not taking any moral high ground and they're going to continue uh, dealing in Russian oil until the politicians tell them they can't was the CEO of Frontline. His name is Lars Barstad. Uh, what he said specifically was, we're following what the politicians want us to do. What we have decided to do is follow the sanctions, what the EU, the US, or the UK decides we follow. So, I mean, the man could, couldn't be any more clear in what his intentions are. And the one thing that would stop him from facilitating the Russian economy, um, I would say take him at his word and force his hand. I'm sure, like Axel said, there are people who have already contacted Mr. Barstad and communicated to him that he needs to get with the program if he wants to uh, operate an American company. But I would say uh, some legal sanctions would communicate to more than just him if we could uh, just follow the lead of the UK and the EU. Yeah, I just... Barstad, what a nice Norwegian name. Yeah, um, I, I don't know if he was born here in the U.S., but he's operating... Frontline, which I believe is a U.S.-based company, so I, I wish Lars would uh, get with it. I just wish that actually somehow we could not, we would just not let them pass the straits. We know there's stolen grain inside. Why are we letting these ships passing by? Isn't uh, Turkey or Turkey or whatever it is now uh, a NATO country? Aren't they supposed to help out? Why they're letting stolen grain passing through the Bosphorus? They've let a lot more uh, yeah, I know. cargo pass through the Bosphorus than that. Mm. Yeah. But well, well, if you want to, if you want to ride Mr. Bastard, you can go on Twitter. He is, uh, shall we say. As we, I mean, this, Ryan sent me these articles yesterday and we already had this discussion, so it's nothing new. If you feel strongly about this matter, you can immediately address it. Petter is there, so he can probably say a few words about this. Petter. Well, actually, I was going to address Mr. Barstow, um, who is a Norwegian. And the Frontline... Exactly. Frontline is uh, a company owned by a person who would be Uh, uh, the richest Norwegian, uh, a billionaire, multi-billionaire in dollars, uh, but is not Norwegian because he decided that after Norway had paid for his public schooling, 
given him everything he needed, so made sure that the health system supported his two lovely daughters being. He didn't like to pay taxes in Norway, so he moved to Cyprus. Um, so, um, uh, but th th that guy is known to be completely ruthless, uh, not interested in any uh, moral issues or, or uh, principled positions as long as it makes money. So I think uh, uh, no shaming or uh, moral high grounding will bring frontline around. Uh, I totally agree that, uh, that it has to be regulatory to make those guys or sanctions to make those guys fall into line. Do you remember what I said about the state sponsor of terrorism declaration? I did not hear you say that. Um, okay, there's a there's a um, there's something uh, which came out of a bipartisan move in the U.S. Senate, which is a current draft which has been put forward, and uh, it includes as sponsors behind it, whilst not yet uh, fully uh, rounded up. It includes, of course, uh, Lindsey Graham and Amy Klobuchar and uh, John Cornyn, but a number of senior Democrats and a number of senior Republicans are on it just as well. And um, indications are that this will become even clearer uh, in the coming days. Yes. They have asked openly already, and Ryan, you can compliment this in a second. Um, they have asked already openly for President Biden and his administration to declare Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. Because that brings in the full might of the U.S. government and all its agencies to go after everyone who facilitates and collaborates with any government-related entity of Russia, any entity of Russian um, which is influenced by Russia, which um, generates benefit for Russia, and that you can then immediately go after these parties or these individuals. That means anyone who is a collaborateur, anyone. And this is exactly what we should be doing because this has been done with Iran and Ryan has been working on something with Peter Doran in that regard. Ryan, shoot. Um, I totally lost my train of thought there. Uh, give me a second. Okay, let, let me ask uh, Axel for a question. What uh, would be the good wine pairing to go with that decision from the... Sorry, a good wine pairing with that decision when it's being... Sorry, which decision? I need more information. The previous speaker had a lot of background noise. I didn't catch that question either, but they might be hesitant to chime back in because of the background noise. Uh, I was going to ask you, Axel, do you know if uh, um, Stephanie Bice has co-signed that legislation yet? Because if she hasn't, I would like to uh, reach out to her and ask her to do so. I am not aware of that. I don't think that anyone has co-signed it yet because this was still a draft being circulated. Um, and, uh, and I think it originates actually from a discussion in the Senate Judiciary. Um, ah, so it's, it's Senate-related. She's a... She's, a, she's in the House. Uh, Congress. Yeah, correct. She's a Congresswoman, not a Senator. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that she can't, you know, go across the building and have a little look-see as to what the other guys are doing. Absolutely. Not at all. Um, Senator Inhofe and I, Lankford, I guess, could be encouraged likewise, but uh, I have absolutely zero rapport, if not negative rapport with both of them. So <laughs> I don't think I could uh, be very effective in that regard. Yeah, but there will be others here who can be. So this is the point. Absolutely. I mean, this yeah. is, and, and this they is need as to hear bipartisan from... as it goes. Absolutely. And like I was just getting ready to follow up with that. They need to hear uh, 
bipartisan support for this. All they ever get is somebody blowing smoke up their skirt or people complaining. And if someone from the other side of the aisle were so gracious as to contact them and let them know that, uh, you know, I'm for the foreseeable future, at least until Russia goes home, I'm a single issue voter. And if you're willing to co-sign on this, you might just earn a vote from the other side of the aisle. Okay, so, yeah. so now we, um, we uh, Petra, you're back on, you have your hand up, back up. Yeah, I was just going to ask you what you think would be a good uh, wine pairing with uh, the Biden administration deciding to disanate Russia, a state sponsor of terrorism. To keep with the symbolism, I would go for um, either a 1989 Margot, because it is the year where uh, the Soviet Union started to fall, or alternatively, um, the 1961 uh, Gaia Barbaresco, because it's the year when the Soviet Union induced uh, the Soviet occupied zone to build a wall and the US held against it. If you want something a little bit more straightforward and maybe more new, uh, I would suggest something like uh, uh, Vima Magdalena from Finger Lakes. It's a, uh, you know, for a moment of American clarity. Well said. Say Pinot Blanc. I will say Pinot Blanc from the Elsa. Petra, I hope that we could give you appropriate analogical advice. But you're very welcome to uh, also push uh, Frontline and name and shame them in Norway as much as you can. I'm, I'm sure there's a couple of people at Norscan Partners, uh, uh, all former uh, grandees of Christiana Bank and the likes, uh, who may have a view on this matter too. And Frontline are sort of untouchables. They, they, they really don't care. So I'm not sure public pressure is possible on them, to be honest here. Everyone is touchable. Exactly. When the when some when the US declares Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism, trust me, whoever believes that they can stand up to this has well, to find a place somewhere in the Antarctic. I, I can almost guarantee well, I, I can guarantee you without a doubt that frontline moves more than just Russian oil and if they start losing other customers um, who do agree to take a moral stance on an issue that uh, might influence their, if they're only influenced by their pocketbook, people, people's pocketbooks can be influenced. Every other customer, every other party working with them, every stevedor entity, every port receiving them would then be liable. Think about it. Olaf, um, I know that's not your real name and I forget what your real name is. You've got your hand Alex. raised. Alex. Yeah, hi to everyone. Um, very interesting morning today. I, I heard that uh, very very interesting uh, things you're talking about, uh, especially about the great. Uh, so, uh, by the way, uh, what do you think? If, uh, for example, uh, Turkey and uh, what they what what can they do with this? I'm just curious. Your audio cut out for a moment. Um, you said if, for example, if Turkey what now? Uh, if Turkey. Like if Erdogan took these ships, Russian ships, or, or, or the grain from this ship, uh, what, key, what can he uh, do with this? Like what the variations of this? Because uh, for now... He doesn't. Turkey, Turkey doesn't. I'm sorry, Alex. Okay. Turkey does not do any of this. They, they, uh, A, Turkey has no commercial capacity to take grain. What you meant is what would I think what you meant is what would happen if Turkey were to send its mine hunters and its escort ships to help 
um, get uh, stolen grain by Russian commercial ships or Russian hired commercial ships out of the Black Sea. Is that what your question is? Okay. And uh, I have a question to the guest from Norway. Uh, how the Norway now uh, feeling about Russia? I, I saw your profile, but it is personal, your personal uh, view, and I respect your view. But I'm curious uh, what, like, the civilian Norway thinking about the situation? Because the uh, the thoughts of uh, uh, of guys from the uh, Marine Jäger, or I don't remember how this word, uh, I know a few of them, and we, we've spoken sometimes, and I know their meaning, uh, their view, but this is a military view, and it is obvious what the civilian Norway thinks. I'll try not to uh, give you too long of an answer, but I think just understanding that Norway is... Um, You need, in order to understand the Norwegian reaction, you need to understand a little bit about Norwegian political culture. Uh, in Norway, we have the world's highest trust in authority and government, uh, along with uh, Sweden and Denmark and Iceland and Finland, so the Nordic countries. And um, so people in Norway uh, tend to trust their government to do the right thing. Um, and uh, and we also have uh, the least corruption and... Uh, and um, I would say uh, mostly non-corrupt uh, and mostly well-meaning politicians, not always, uh, you know, top on competence, but uh, we also have quite competent bureaucracies to keep them in line. So uh, government also works quite well. Um, and so the most Norwegians tend to trust their government to sort of take care of stuff, um, which leads to a certain amount of complacency and lack of uh, a personal initiative and especially in this crisis our government has been very silent not leading the people um, stating clear opposition to russia's aggression but not spelling out clearly that uh, russia needs to be uh, defeated uh, just voicing a lot of solidarity with uh, ukraine um, but uh, everything that the government is doing for ukraine is uh, done in stealthily and you know when the the um, artillery systems were delivered that was only known after they were already in theater uh so uh, norwegians are complacent they generally support ukraine but they don't they don't have any activity in their daily life that uh relates to that so they they move on mentally they sort of file it in in the back of their heads that uh, you know it's a shame what russia is doing in in ukraine and hopefully you know this will turn out well and uh, then they may not think that ukraine could win uh, but they hope they will do as well as possible and that some sort of compromise will be worked out so it's a it's a state of uh, of um support but passivity and uh coupled with ignorance so um i'm frustrated because this is falling out of uh of um uh media's picture and then there's more and more sports there's more and more celebrity news there's more and more you know uh um air delays at airports and that's kind of stuff that's uh taking um uh taking the front stage in the media thank you because the the military part i know uh They are almost understand the conflict. They understand what they're doing. And today I just retweet the interest uh, thing that uh, the interested view, like uh, the Norway firstly doing, mm -hmm. spoke about this and this great. 
uh and it is works uh like i can uh i can speak from the uh like <laughs> from the first phase yeah like uh, it is works for real because uh we saw the support the physically support of uh from norway from norway sweden and finland of course and from denmark uh, we even have a uh, guys and girls from the scandinavia in the foreign legion and uh, everyone knows what's happened and what's doing and i just want to say Thank you. And uh, yeah, who's next? Beso. Yeah. Um, I uh, DM'd Ryan and uh, Doman a piece I found on uh, Telegram. By the way, nice words, uh, Alex. Uh, really lovely about Norway. And nice to hear from both. Sorry. Just uh, I needed to mention a piece for Ukraine. No problem. Um, Ukraine, uh, I will need to uh, tell this. Ukraine will be able to exchange the cash Herniva, Herniva, I'm not saying, in the Netherlands. Yeah, yeah, thank you. (laughs) In the Netherlands, uh, don't care about the the Netherlands in this case. Uh, According to him, him, by the end of June, senior Ukrainians who have received to temporarily stay in the Netherlands will be able to exchange their currency in cash for Europe. The limit is up to 10,000 Hernevia, I in purpose. Sorry, names are difficult. Um, just to add, um, so this is sounds a lot, but uh, as Dom pointed already out, it's about three hundred thirty euros, and that's uh, taken in account exchange etc. Et or more or less. That doesn't seem a lot, and I wanted to talk about this. Uh, why, how, it's, it's a nice thing, I think, but um, why is this news and, and why um, wasn't this uh, able? Because foreign currency exchange is, is nothing new. So it's, it's a bit of mystery why this is news and, and go on. So who is facilitating this? What does it mean they're now allowed to do so? Is this a central bank that previously prevented it or some other regulator and who's administering this i i think this is really where the question lies because you know if you if you go to bureau de change you could generally and you know at least say in poland you could go in with harivnia and get some slotte and i don't think there was necessarily a, a limit certainly not a limit like that and i i remember when you know seeing seeing in hungary a, a few weeks ago as well that they were taking harivnia uh, in exchange offices, so I, I don't know what's uh, what. What was the state before? Why wasn't? Why was it not possible? Is the first question that my that comes to my mind anyway. Yeah, same for me, Ryan. Since you're also a bit into economic economics, Axel dropped off. I think. Or does anybody uh, want to come up and and talk about it? Apologies, I was responding to a DM. Uh, can you restate your question or let me look again at, uh, oh, I, I don't have anything to remark on the exchange stuff. Uh, for Un- unless unless somebody the- knows what the situation was before and how it was, uh, what was the cause of it, as well as who the, you know, the people who changed their minds, let's say, on that were. I think it's really difficult to, to comment well on it without having that um, that bit of information. Um, that's just me. Maybe somebody else is more is, is braver or more insightful, uh, but there, there are limits on on me. Uh, can I? 
I'm sorry, I have too much voices in my head uh, from this Twitter. So I will be talking and then you stop. Uh, so uh, there is no issues. So issue with money never was. So when people start to uh, move um, from Ukraine, uh, they quickly had only what they, they only took what they able to took. They cash, uh, they took cash money and countries then try to, to allow it to exchange to uh, local currency to allow it uh, people to live normally so it there is no issue there is uh, only shows that more and more country helps ukrainians to live uh, let's say 300 euros it's not enough to live one day but ukrainians is smart people they want 300 euros they can live maybe even a week so it just shows that more and more country allowing it this exchange that people who, who just lived uh, who did, does not have because there is a lot of people of ukrainians who do not have uh, credit cards they only have hard cash money and it shows how countries uh, helping them to allow it to exchange to local uh currency and uh, allow it to live normal like a normal people so there is no issues so thank you those countries who helping ukrainians thank you thank you slavo Karini. yeah that makes uh it makes good sense to me um i think maybe in some places it was difficult to exchange it maybe so this is me me conjecturing there but i think it was possible that in some countries there simply wasn't much of a you know you established market for Hrivnia um, and maybe it wasn't possible to actually exchange your, your Hrivnia at uh, a typical bureau de change because simply there wasn't enough traffic in it usually and maybe then uh, sorry, maybe the Netherlands was one of those countries before and maybe I'm just guessing here maybe they, they've managed some sort of a, a, a deal with some banks or maybe some bureau de change to to enable that, to kind of say, you know, guys, just just like take Karivnia, we'll we'll sort it out through the central bank or whatever. We swear, um, maybe that's maybe that's what happened, uh, specifically in the in the Netherlands. Maybe it's some sort of, you know, it wasn't possible previously, and now now it is. Um, just just guessing. So it was uh, really uh, true, true, like yeah, like you said, because uh, Ukrainians who just had uh, on hands uh, just Karivnia. They cannot buy anything on the market with Ukraine, and they could not have uh, ability to go to the bank and exchange to the local uh, um, currency. It was a real issue, but it just shows that more and more countries just helping Ukrainians. So it's very nice. In, it's in, integration into Europe, so it works. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, hey, Slavo Ukraini, let's um, let's talk a little bit about Ukrainian tendencies for cash over card let's say um how common is still the usage of cash in everyday life in, in ukraine so in in different european countries there are big differences between you know the balance between cash and card so if you go to a lot of the nordic countries very few people use cash on a daily basis you know they might have uh 
maybe you know a few tens of euros worth of cash in their wallet, but it might be there for months at a time and they never touch it. And then in some other countries, for example, in, in Germany, the use of cash is really widespread and you know a very large proportion of people will use cash on a daily basis, at least for many, if not all, transactions that, that they do on a daily basis. So so how, how does that balance look like in Ukraine normally? Um, you know, is it is it very cash based? Do most people, or a lot of people, use cash for most things in in their daily lives? Or, um, and you know, maybe talk about the situation before this most recent invasion, especially because obviously um, now it can it can have it might have changed a little bit. Uh, great question, thank you. Uh, so, um, in my opinion, uh, coronavirus uh, war uh, does does not affect it too much because even before. Ukraine was really uh, moving fast with the dig- digitalization. So, uh, how it looks uh, in Ukraine? For, for example, uh, older people. So, let me start uh, from this point. A uh, few years years ago, uh, this digitalization and I think uh, even mass uh, propagation of the uh, card issue uh, meaning bank cards credit cards and it was started a lot uh, maybe three four five years ago and a lot even older people uh, was uh, issued uh, this credit uh, not even credit uh, debit cards because uh, this was an easy way to pay uh, pensions to pay uh, their plata earned money, work money. So it was really uh, simplified a lot. But as I know, even my mother, uh, she get uh, this um, money on the card, but she prefer using the cash. So uh, she loves uh, local market. She loves uh, uh, farmer market. So she buys goods by with the hard money. It's not uh, issues. She's not... Uh, um, having uh, with him, with 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 them uh, a lot of the money, she just have enough to buy some groceries and other stuff. Uh, but all the rest of the money just in the bank, and when they need, they just get enough and go to the to the store. Um, another thing uh, with the in the cities and with the younger people who move very fast. So it looks very um, convenient convenient to just use cars and other electronic uh, means to move fast, pay fast, uh, exchange, uh, do transfer. So it looks very modern and is uh, breaks a lot of these, uh, um, let's say, stop factors. It moves very fast. So. In Ukraine, it's re- really digitalization made big jump, and as I said, coronavirus uh, coronavirus uh, uh, war did not change a lot, but it is even pushed more to dig- digitalization because it's more convenient to people uh, have contact, have uh, um, information flow, and have uh, money and even this uh, electronic.